Today, I'm thrilled I'm doing a podcast episode with my good friend Thomas Godfrey. Tom recently completed a degree in honours in neurobiology. He has also done a lot of other interesting things and has a keen interest in both government and public health. Today, we discuss his own research during during his honours year and how it might relate to public health. We also discuss a number of our own interests, including smoking and vaping, and our opinion to New Zealand's approach to banning tobacco. We will also talk about harm reduction in both Australia and around the world. Be advised, we do go on a number of tangents in this episode and talk about a lot of random things, but sit back and listen and enjoy the podcast. Hi, my name is Jamil, and you're listening to the Public Health World Podcast. Join me as I interview people in the world of public health, human rights, social justice, and controversial social health issues. Sit back, listen, and enjoy the podcast. This podcast was recorded on Ghana country. I would like to pay respects to the Ghana people, past, present and future. I would also like to acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Ghana land. I would like to pay my respects and acknowledge any other First Nations people listening in Ghana country or around the world. Hey, Tom, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jamil. It's great to be here. No problem. Um, so to start off, um, I'm going to do like a little icebreaker. It's just a question I ask and, and, and all my guests. Um, and I suppose two almost to some extent. Um, number one is um, if you could change any think in public, any, any big issue, issue in the world, what would it be? Um, I would do climate change, but I'd do that by having a political system that could make long-term planning and changes. And you'll see this all throughout public health and all throughout problems in our society. In the Western world, we just don't have the political structures to make long-term decisions and careful planning. That's what I'd change. Yep, yep, okay. And um, the second question is, what does public health mean to you? Public health means to me the future of both my life and my kids' life and everyone else's. And when you have bad public health, you have a bad society to live in. And so it means having a good country and a good society that I can live in in the future because everyone's healthy and I'm going to be healthy and everyone else and my kids are going to be healthy too. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. So um, to start off the actual topics of what we're talking about today, which will be a lot more varied than most other guests I've had, um, to start off, we're going to talk about your own research and even a little bit of your experience of university and kind of everything like that. So you're a neuroscientist, correct? Yeah, so I just finished my honours degree in neuroscience. Um, I'm now graduating out into industry, but I've been in neuroscience for five years now. Yeah, so what led you towards neuroscience? Well, I started out in maths and physics, and as much as I love that sort of pure maths, pure physics... I always was really interested in making a difference and actually helping people in a health sense. And the other thing that you know, Jamil, is that as a kid, I was always interested in bionics and prosthetics and brain-computer implants and interfaces as sort of a future idea. But I really wanted to actually do that in practice. And so I walked into a random, random introduction to neuroscience class one day in university and never walked out, and I loved it. Fair enough, yeah. Um, so... You did an honours, which meant you also did um, a research project. Mm-hmm. What was that based on? So my research project was a bit esoteric and complicated, but it was basically we were studying the inside of monkey brains. The context of this project is that in schizophrenia, there are certain parts of the brain that people think go wrong. And one of those parts is a very little-known area called the claustrum. And the claustrum is a tiny bit of thin sheet of cells wedged between the main cortex area on the left and right side where you could say your thinking happens, 
mostly the auditory cortex. And the inner brain area is like the thalamus. Between these two is this almost alfoil sheet-like uh, piece, set of cells that connects to almost every other part of the brain. It's the best connected part of the entire brain, and no one has any idea what it does. The best theories, though, is that it's, its malfunction is probably related to schizophrenia. And so in a monkey called the marmoset, which is used for studying this area, I was working and we were trying to resolve a structural question. And that question was, is this monkey's claustrum, is it just one sheet of cells like it is in some mice and smaller, and smaller primates and mammals? Or is it actually split into multiple sections as it is in humans? And this is really important because if you're doing research in this monkey, you need to know whether it's going to be like a human's brain or, like, or not like a human's brain. And my project was basically able to prove that it was split into at least three sections. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. So, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, you also did your um, honours in a bit of a different way with your research with the monkeys because you didn't actually have access to them. They're actually in the States, correct? Yeah, so we, had, we did have access to a couple monkeys, but we um, had monkeys that had already been euthanized and their brains were used for other experiments. When we got them, we ended up staining their brains for, to show two things. One, it showed the, all the connections between the neurons and also to show all of the important neurons itself. And then I did a big AI project to count those cells and look at the arrangement of them and prove that by like grouping cells in certain areas that there were different parts of this classroom. Yeah. So it was very much a computer science project as well as a pure neuroscience project. Yeah. Yeah, no. So um, I'm going to ask you an ethical question with this as well. Yes. I think he knew it was coming at some yes. point. <laughs> um, me being a vegan, I do have to kind of ask... Do do you see a point in the future where we're going to get to a point where we're not going to need um, the use of animals for these types of experiments? I really damn well hope so, because when I was doing this experiment, as much as I loved the research I did, I was also conflicted by the question of, is this actually, is this monkey dying for a real reason? And especially as, you'll, as I'll tell you later with my research, its implications are only going to be usable in 50 or 100 years. So it's like, what is this monkey really dying for? And um, my justification is that right now it's definitely not possible to do this sort of research without using um, animals. In the future, I hope it'll be, but I'm not convinced it's anytime soon because in order to get to the point where we can do this without invasive technology, we need to basically have already understood the brain a lot better than we do. And the only way to get to that understanding is to take apart heaps of brains. Thought for you. Yes. Um... A monkey brain, no matter what, is going to be different to a human brain. Mm -hmm. So how is picking apart a monkey brain, so to speak, going to help with human brain? So the reason we picked apart this monkey brain in the first place is because we um, can take dead human brains and pick them apart all you like because they're donated by very kind people who, who donate their brains after they die. But if you're trying to fix, to do stuff on a living human brain, like schizophrenia research there's a lot of stuff problems you, you, <laughs> yeah you've got big problems because you can't just like go poking random electrons and and doing all sorts of stuff that you can do on animals and humans when they're alive so what we were hoping to do was prove that the monkey brain was similar enough to the human brain that you can do research on a monkey brain and then transfer it to the humans so we would be able to do things called tracer studies which um where you inject chemical and you can see where that tracer moves um deep and complex electrical studies that you can't do in humans we're hoping to be able to do this on this monkey brain and then using my research and similar, say that it's, it's very likely that the human is similar. There's a few steps for it, right? But there is still a clear logic about why we would want to use this monkey brain, yeah. even and, though it's not pleasant. Yeah. And the other question is, eventually when your research becomes relevant, so to mm -hmm. speak, um, there's kind of a, a gap, as you know. So hypothetically, if someone were to create like a... Um, a medicine, hypothetically someone creates a medicine for mm -hmm. schizophrenia, you've got the issue where I think it's 80 odd percent of medicines, things like that made or tested on animals mm -hmm. or f from an animal based way generally speaking we'll have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, they won't so, work on humans yes. exactly. <laughs> so, and that's even if they're testing on things like monkeys and other, other mm -hmm. primate type animals so to speak so I uh, it gets a bit weird in that sense as well. So how do you exactly. kind of... It's a huge problem, actually. 
again, I was doing this research to try and at least find a way that you could have them as similar as showing them as similar enough to do mm. this so that you would know. So basically, all of um, I'm a structural neuroscientist, and what we're doing right now in the field is to lay almost a ground map for future research. Because I think there's going to be an extent where animals will be necessary for really complex neuroscience research. But what you can do is understand the brains you're working with well enough and the relationship between them so that you can do the minimal amount of research possible. And so what we're trying to do is effectively minimize the amount of times we need to be testing random drugs on a monkey that will never work on a human because we knew that the structure of it would just not allow that drug to mm. work or not allow that treatment to work. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. So um, as well... What are the like? Um, you mentioned talking um, before we started talking uh, here. You mentioned the um, implications of kind of this research being done at such an early stage mm-hmm. when it should be done at a lot later stage, closer to a research mm-hmm. the the point where the research can be actually useful. Yeah. Um, can you kind of go into so that a bit? Let's. Let's imagine sort of two ways that research could be done if you were trying to solve schizophrenia in the classroom. One way is just test hundreds or thousands of drugs on animals and then try them all on humans that work and then get there. The other way is to try and understand the root cause of the problem on the animals, then try and understand it on humans, and then you have far less drugs. So what we're trying to do, as I said, is to minimise the number of experiments we need to do. Because that's good for our research budgets, that's good for the time of the scientist, and it's obviously good for all the animals and, pa- and human patients. But what we're trying to do now is do this research early and build that roadmap. And if we don't do that research early on now, and we don't um, spend a lot of resources in understanding the very foundations of how our consciousness works, then we're not going to have the ability to do anything later because we're effectively walking in the dark. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, and I suppose, um, how do we fix that? It's, it's a real problem, right? Neuroscience is probably one of the least developed fields, certainly in medicine, that I know. Um, if you think about medicine of the heart or of the kidneys or any other part of the body, it's probably there's been a 100 years of really active research. And so we know a majority about what causes most heart conditions. We don't know how to solve them, and there's huge questions remaining. But in neuroscience, if you ask any neuroscientist how a particular part of the brain works, they will have no answer. Even in my first year of university, I was asking questions to my professors who had no idea what the answer was. We're really in the dark here. I think um, there's sort of two ways that we can help solve this problem. This will come into what we're saying later. Firstly, we need more international collaboration and better funding for better experiments. So we don't need to be just doing more experiments. We need to be doing experiments where people have spent six months carefully planning it out, where they've minimised the use of animals and where they really know what they're doing. And that means people having scientists who aren't freaking out about funding all the time because they have to do all of these experiments. And we also need really good collaboration and open access research, which is currently being hindered by problems in the publishing industry um, and problems else. But as COVID demonstrated, when we're collaborating well across researchers, then you end up with really good research really fast. So back up slightly there. Um, I will definitely go back to the open access in a second, but I had a thought kind of as you were talking um, with I know that doctors in general need to learn more about the biopsychosocial model of health, mm-hmm. but do you think that health scientists like uh, well like neuroscientists and other areas as well should um, learn a bit more about that sort of biopsychosocial model of health rather than just focusing on the biomedical model of health? Yeah, absolutely. Because in in my area as a structural neuroscientist, it's almost completely siloed from any other part of medicine. And that means that whenever we're discussing the structure of the brain, we almost never discuss what the brain is being used for, which is social relations and and staying alive. And so we need a lot more sort of cross discussion about that stuff. And we, um, I can think of a really good example. Part One of the theories that was proposed 30 years ago about why this classroom might be split into multiple sections is because it allowed complex social interactions to be processed through that. That theory fell by the wayside when the guy just stopped getting funding who was doing it, and then nobody paid attention. But I think that still has legs now. Mm, yeah, no, um, yeah, no, so I have a clue. I know next to nothing about <laughs> the brain, let alone neuroscience. Um, so, yeah, no, and then as I said, hopping back to kind of um, open access, but not just open access, but communication as well. You mentioned this 
need for um, for scientists to learn how to communicate properly, which is funny, like because you're just talking yeah. about communi- the thing in your head, uh, whatever it was called, the um, classroom. Yeah, the classroom mm-hmm. um, possibly being part of communication. So, do you, like, do you see a need for like more, not just more collaboration, but also learning? in university how to uh, collaborate with uh, not not just scientists but also government and and stakeholders in themselves absolutely and it's a structural incentive problem because scientists at university right now are pressured to do research as fast as possible and get papers out and those papers are read by other scientists and the more scientists who reference your paper the more likely you are to get funding that means that scientists only really learn to talk to other scientists and they don't talk to Certainly they really don't talk to the public. And they don't really talk to people in the government or in policy that much either. Um, in some areas this is a lot better, but in really niche fields like mine, no one really goes outside their field. And this means that the public don't know what's going on, and it also means that the scientists don't understand a lot of the broader implications of their research because they don't have that perspective. And we really need it both in order to get that perspective and also to, have, to make it easier for scientists to actually do their work because if they're talking to a psychologist at the same time, and that psychologist is talking to counsellors and people on the ground who know what's going on in society, then there's more connections you can make. Yeah, yeah, no, so, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, yeah, we need we need more communication. <laughs> yeah, and I got lucky, I was a debater, but if you talk to most scientists about their research, they will not shut up, but you will not understand what they're talking about, <laughs> ever. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Um, and going back to the open access, what is open access for people who may not be as familiar um, of the concept. So let's let's actually start by talking about how normal journal publishing works. Because when a scientist makes a discovery, they write a paper and they publish it. And that gets published by in a scientific journal. That scientist will usually pay to publish it a bit, but not that much, comes out of their research funding. And that journal is owned by basically one of two massive American companies that controls the entire publishing industry. And they charge hundreds of dollars to access a single article and they will charge university library departments millions or tens of millions of dollars a year to access their catalogues. And what that means is that almost all research made in the world right now is behind an extremely expensive paywall, which is ridiculous because we, the public, fund scientists at universities without taxes to get to re- to get research, which is then, and we then have to pay American companies to access that research that we funded. So the open access model is... Um, journals that are open to anyone, and instead of charging the person who accesses the journal to pay for it, they charge the scientists a fee to publish in the journal. Open access is really good, but the problem is scientists are already underfunded, and open access journals can cost hundreds or thousands of dollars to publish in already, which means you end up making it also harder for a scientist to publish. And so what I think we need is a solution where research is automatically going to be hosted on government websites and journals and servers so that a government-funded scientist can have their research out there without having to pay anyone for it because that was the reason they're employed in their job, is to make the research that the public can access. Mm. Yeah, no, so a few things with that. Um, So basically open access, as summarise it, is allowing journals and research journals to essentially be open to the public without excessive fees, essentially. Yeah. now, something I mentioned a while ago in a seminar that I went to on open access was, um, of generally speaking, um, right, wait, sorry, um, open access is obviously really good, but if the general public doesn't know how to read research in the first place, is putting on government websites, as you mentioned, a good, no, not good idea, but kind of a um, a helpful thing? Or is it kind of just something that's there and it doesn't really change anything anyway? Well, it's certainly helpful for the scientists who are working with the information, but it could be unhelpful for the public. Um, and we need to do a lot of broader education to make it work. Um, as everyone knows, when COVID came around, there was a big research to push for, to push to understand the disease and get that information out there. And so we ended up with huge numbers of scientists and governments and publishing all of this data open access. And often a scientist would do a study on COVID and then publish it pre-parent, which means that it wasn't reviewed by other scientists before it got published. 
what happened then is that the media often went and picked up these studies, didn't understand what they were reading, and then reported um, often over-exaggerated or misunderstood pieces of research. That ended up being often more harmful than helpful because people thought that a vaccine was sooner than it was actually away or that there were certain that you could take certain drugs to cure COVID that weren't going to actually do anything. And so what we need, I think, is a more holistic well, approach. It was bleach, wasn't it? <laughs> um, it was bleach and it was an American drug called hydroxychloroquine that um, even got to the point of Donald Trump promoting it and that ended very badly. Hey, he promoted bleach too. He did promote bleach. <laughs> Neither of these things ended well. But most of this stuff happened because we had scientists who were publishing open and then a general public who was interpreting and misinterpreting this information because they're not really taught. You're not taught in school how to read a paper. Mm. And you're also often not taught that when a paper says something, it also comes with a whole bunch of limitations that that scientist is thinking about mm. that might not be obvious from that text. Yeah, and then also you've got to, depending on the type of study as well, you've got to also got to remember things like bias... And even if it's unintentional, like, uh, or even intentional, I mean, nutritional studies are notorious for it because of the person who's fund or the group who's funding it. It's exactly. directly related to, um, to, to all that. And it also leads as to an interesting area of public health, which a lot of people probably haven't even thought of, is the need for open access as a public health issue, because. Mm. As we saw with COVID, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the reason that um, COVID um, research went so quickly, like was yeah. it a year less? It was like eight, eight or nine months by the time it all went through. The, like, by the time it all went through, they had a lot of won a lot of research, but they were also able to build on things. Yeah. Um, an interesting one you might like. I actually heard um, people were able to make homemade ventilators in um, some of the third world countries mm. um, because they didn't have access to certain types of piping and things like that, which then I believe some other countries used as well. Yeah, and actually one of the interesting things is that even private companies who had patented ventilator designs made those designs open access at the time. Mm. COVID is a fascinating example of, I think, two things here. It's an example of how... Open access research can be really useful and dangerous, as we've just covered. It's also how long-term planning is so important. Because although COVID, um, when COVID hit, governments decided very quickly to deal with the problem and poured huge amounts of money into researching it and made all that research open access. But before that, with SARS, a lot of the research had been defunded and forgotten. So the SARS epidemic happened in the early mm. 2000s and was a genetically similar virus to COVID. But because it fizzled out very quickly and disappeared, people stopped paying attention to it. And so governments withdrew funding from research, which mm. was turned out to be a huge mistake because by the time COVID came around, that fund, that research would have probably made COVID far less impactful and had us, allowed us to get our vaccines a year earlier mm. if we had done that research at the time and if people had paid attention to that research at the time. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Um Alice, we're moving on to a completely different topic mm. now. Um, you used to um, do a bit of work um, as an internship or something, correct, through mm. a tobacco company, much yep. to his dismay and regret in the in, like in the future yep. now. Um, but it also leads to an interesting thing around um, the smoking ban in New Zealand, where where um, my mate, where Thomas here can actually speak from a tobacco company's point of view and things like that. So um, for those who haven't seen the news, um, uh, New Zealand has banned smoking for anyone... Uh, uh, I think it was born after 2000... And before 2000... After 2009, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah 2009 or eight or some area around there. Um, so, yeah, we're going to actually do a bit of an interesting one where we're going to actually talk just about the possible benefits but also some downsides because there are always downsides to these sorts of policies. Yeah, so, so I think I'll give uh, just a bit of context exactly what the policy is. So New Zealand has law, has made a law now passed which is that people who are under the age of 14 now or anyone born after 2009 will never be legally allowed to buy cigarettes in New Zealand. They're also accompanying with this with a bunch of new laws so they're making cigarettes only available in tobacconists even more expensive than they are, and they're already the most expensive cigarettes in the world right now, and um, a bunch of other anti-smoking measures. 
The other thing that's often not mentioned in articles about this is that one of those anti-smoking measures has been legalising vapes with nicotine in them. And vapes with nicotine in them are currently illegal in Australia. They were illegal in New Zealand, but they've been made legal. And the result of this is that um, whereas the smoking rate in New Zealand is dropping fast, the vaping rate is rising. And this is far from an accident. What happened and what most people don't know, and I, I learned this working in the industry, is that around 10, 5 to 10 years ago, the tobacco companies went to New Zealand with a deal. Because New Zealand was a shrinking market, it was a very small market, and the tobacco companies didn't really want to do business there if they were going to be uh, ever smaller and smaller number of cigarettes that they were selling. So they went to the government and they said, we will stop selling, allow you to stop selling cigarettes, and we won't make a fuss in the international scene about it, we won't take you to court for it, we're not going to make your life difficult, on the condition that you let us sell vapes. Um, there's sort of two types of vapes they're selling. It's the, the vapes everyone's seen where it's just a vapor cloud and some nicotine in it with a fruit flavor. And also some weirder products like little, uh, they're called Icos, which is a little cigarette that can be heated up and makes a vapor out that you can effectively vape. And this deal was called the smoke-free deal. So New Zealand's slogan for this is smoke-free New Zealand 2025. But Philip Morris, who makes Marlboro cigarettes, their slogan is going smoke-free, a smoke-free future. So this branding got co-opted by the New Zealand government. This um, is an interesting idea, right? Because I think on the, st on the surface it sounds like a good idea. We're going to move people off harmful tobacco products into vapes, um, into a less harmful product, in a, which is called harm reduction. Um, but as you might know, Jamil, there are a couple of potential problems with this. The first thing is that no one really knows if vapes are actually safer than cigarettes. Um, it's likely that they are. I've done, read most of the studies about vapes, and the majority seem to suggest it's probably safer. But it's also very clear at this point that vapes are not safe in the long run. Putting something in your lungs that doesn't belong there is never going to be safe over 30, 40 years. And so it seems very likely that vapors will have health issues. But if those health issues are less than they'd get from smoking, maybe it's a good idea. The other problem is that the tobacco companies didn't just want to market their vapes as they said to people who were already full-time smokers and would never be able to quit. Even though that was their line, the unspoken agreement within the tobacco companies is that they were targeting marketing towards 18 to 25-year-olds. What that means is that they were targeting it towards teenagers who were actually going to use the things. Effectively, they wanted new markets. And so what's happening in New Zealand now is that there's been a very large uptick, I think it's in the up to 10% or more uptick, of young people between sort of 15 to 20 who are using vapes. And at that age, those are the people who are the most likely to be permanently addicted to nicotine. The other thing is that vapes are a lot stronger than most cigarettes. And so it's very easy to get addicted to them, even compared to a cigarette, because there's just so much nicotine in that hit. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, so a question as well, um, something uh, I can't remember who told me, I've actually forgotten, to be honest, but um, with the um, this smoking ban, could there eventually be a, for lack of a bad term, like with anything else that becomes illegal, so to speak, um, and one, by the time it becomes illegal in, what, 20... 20... Uh... If it should be illegal for 18-year-olds, I think, in the mid early 2030s. Yeah, so we'll just say 2030 for mm -hmm. just for just to make it easier. By 2030, um, could they, because there'd still be the older generation smoking. Could there be a, for lack of a better term, a bit of a black market for people smoking cigarettes, at, like, like younger people who want to smoke cigarettes, and then also as time goes on, when it becomes. Uh, for a bad term, illegal mm -hmm. to smoke cigarettes, could there be a black market? Market, but to make it worse, no taxes on it, which means kind of like with other with a lot of other drugs, because we don't get the taxes on it, we don't have the money to help people with it. I think there will definitely be a black market, and the New Zealand government knows that there's going to be a black market to some extent. The question is, how harmful is that black market going to be? Because I think the hope of the policy is that if you can make smoking non-existent in society for most people. Um, and smoking has already kind of become very uncool in modern society. It smells, it's not nice, people who smoke cough all the time. So it's already seen as an uncool thing. The hope is that the black market will be relatively small. The other part of this is that 
whereas most drugs that have been illegalized in the past were made illegal all in one go. For example, weed was made illegal in certain places at a particular time and similar drugs. This is a very gradual and slow process. I think with good communication, they can keep the market down. My big concern, counterpoint concern, is that if you have a bunch of young people who see that people who are just a little bit older than them are doing this thing that they're not allowed to, this smoking thing, and it kind of looks a bit cool, they're going to want to get in on that. But if they're not allowed to, and they don't really understand why they're not allowed to, then that could be fertile ground for a black market. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. I would place my money that there will be a black market in New Zealand. The government will lose a lot of revenue. But I think that over 50 to 100 years, it will probably become a relatively small part of society. So it's probably a worthwhile trade-off. The biggest concern is that if you've got young people who are vaping now who can vape legally, then that's always going to be a route for those people to get into illegal cigarettes. And so you might never be able to eliminate it. Yeah, yeah, no. And I suppose that kind of begs the question, is it possible to make a country or a place smoke-free, so to speak? Do you think it's possible to get everyone to stop smoking, even if it is over a set, set amount of time? I don't think so. I think it's possible. It's only possible if you make smoking not a thing that anybody knows about or can ever access. So, like, let's say you had a colony on Mars, for example. It would be easy to make that pretty much smoke-free because there would be no access to tobacco. And I think once that's true for a generation or so, then smoking goes away. But I think there's always going to be nicotine in New Zealand society. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, def- definitely... Uh... Yeah, it's a, bit, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sad sad sort of idea here. It, but it's it is, but it's also very true. It's probably unavoidable. I mean, we've been trying to stop drug use of all kinds for millennia now. We've never been able to do it in all sorts of societies. And the last two hundred years, where things like weed and heroin and cocaine have been illegal in a lot of places, have never seen those drugs fully disappear. So I don't see a reason that cigarettes would be any different. Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose that begs the question, uh, like kind of. Moving on slightly to mm-hmm. what Australia has done recently, you've just mm-hmm. done a really nice segue there too, um, of um, what's happened in Canberra recently mm-hmm. um, with the um, kind of going in the direct opposite, exactly what, opposite, what people yeah. might see as direct, direct opposite of what countries like New Zealand are doing where they've just decriminalised the vast majority of hard drugs mm-hmm. as a form of harm reduction. So it's kind of... It's, it's, it's a very interesting yeah. concept, isn't it? Because we have one drug that we're trying to criminalise in order to reduce harm, and another set that we're trying to decriminalise. I think it's been pretty well established that in places like Spain, um, sorry, Portugal, Portugal. Sake, um, but places like Portugal where uh, decriminalisation has been done for all drugs, that had a really beneficial effect. Mm. Um, you need policies to go with it. You need centres and other well, ways to do it. Yeah, the, the, way I, the way I said it is you need the, um, the infrastructure to back up the policies. Exactly. Of, course you, it, of course you need the policies, but without the infrastructure, it becomes this kind of... Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't work. Well, uh, I think that's actually what New Zealand is doing well with this smoking ban, is that they're giving the infrastructure to back it up. They're having a whole bunch of ways and help that you mm. can help quit smoking. And realistically, vaping is sort of part of that infrastructure. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. To, yeah. yeah, but back to Canberra, I think it's a good idea. So Canberra has now legalised um, the possession of weed and small amounts of use, if I'm being correct. Um, so they have legalised weed since, like, the early 2000s, mm. I believe, and they've um, been a t- one of the few places in Australia that we, where they do pill testing at festivals, mm. all those sorts of things. But the big one that they've just done is they've leg, leg, uh, decriminalised small amounts of other types of drugs, mm-hmm. such as um, ice um, and mushrooms and all sorts of other different drugs, you name it, there's probably a small amount that has been decriminalised to some yeah. extent uh, for personal use. And, look, obviously this is a good idea because the problem with criminalisation is that when you make it criminal... You make the drug unregulated, untaxable, and you also make the use of it able to put you in a place where you're going to commit other crimes and be in health risks. For example, going to prison is a very big health risk. So, thought for you there, mm-hmm. it's not legal, it's decriminalised. They're two different things, which means they still don't get to tax it. No. Um, so, this is where um, I, I'm kind of on the fence of a few different things. I'm, I'm actually a fan of fully de- of fully. Legal, like legalizing things, 
Because if we can legalize it, we can tax it. If we can tax it to a certain amount, we can actually get, um, like, we can put that money from the tax that they've just taxed into the infrastructure. So, if that makes sense. I actually, um, I, I agree with the concept, but I actually disagree with the bit that tax is the most important part here. Because the government can already put mm. money into that infrastructure from other tax revenues. The, the more the, important aspect, I think, sorry to interrupt, is that I think um, it's regulating what's in the drugs, making sure that your supply of ice has good and safe methamphetamine and is not being cut with random other chemicals like crocodile and, and other um, drugs that could do you a lot of harm. Mm. Same with weed, same, honestly, with, with vaping. Um, one of the big problems we have here in Australia is that vapes are very common, but they're illegal, and we don't know what's in those liquids, and they could be doing even more harm than a normal vape would do. Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Um, and as, as I kind of mentioned there as well, the big thing is a lot of people, and the big issue with decriminalisation and all these other different things, is the general public doesn't understand it. Mm. So when we talk about... Um, wanting to put infrastructure in, like, rehabs and all these other different things, the general public often doesn't like that idea, which is where the idea of legalisation, where we're taxing the people who are using it, to the same way as smoking, Mm -hmm. where we tax the people who are using these drugs um, to help them. Mm It sounds weird. It's I, I understand that, but at the but same, but I think it's I definitely agree with it. With it. Yeah, it, it works, and I think it also if you can communicate that that's what's happening, it makes it um, a lot less a lot less mm. um, stigmatized to use drugs. That's the other side. Is with stigma comes more uh, right, not more opportunities to get help, but more. Um, they're more, you're more willing to get help. That's, yeah, the, and, that's the word. And yeah. when you have a lot of stigma, it sort of reduces your ability to access both the healthcare and also to feel like you're a valued and included mm. member in society who even deserves that access. Exactly, yeah. And then also, depending on where you are in the world, you can actually get arrested for getting help, which well, exactly. is like a... It's this, it's, it's Cats 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely. And um, a good example of this... Um, now, uh, kind of um, a little bit with the abortion sort of stuff in America and stuff like that, but more mm-hmm. based around drugs and that. There's a country in the south, a state in the south of America. I forgot which one it is, mm-hmm. but um, it's Arkansas or one of those ones down down in the south where obviously drug use is still highly mm-hmm. highly illegal. Um, and something that is a huge issue there is um, pregnant women are less likely to get help for uh, drug, like if they're abusing drugs, um, because of the fact that if they go and get help, they will be chucked in jail. Mm. and Which then causes further it issues. exacerbates problems, yeah. Um, which also leads to another interesting thing as I was... What was it? I had in my, had in my brain as I was saying it. Um, legalization, legalization... Um, no, I forgot what it was. It was I think, so I think the thing. important point here is that there's a really careful policy balance between making something accessible and making something inaccessible. And if you have, as we see on one side, when you have drugs that are highly illegal, you harm people because your, your policies to put them down are too strong. Mm. But if you have them too accessible, it's also a harm. If um, when smoking was is so accessible, mm. then it's going to harm your society. Mm. And so every what we need, I think, is a much more open and honest discussion in society about how we make these decisions and balances. Because I think that in the sort of the rhetoric of the war on drugs in the last 30 years, we've ended up not letting us have the conversation about how do we carefully do this. And, and, as, and as well, another thought is with, with um, drugs in themselves, we always talk about how bad drugs are mm. and all this, other diff- all this other stuff. Drug abuse is bad. The drugs themselves aren't actually... I mean, yeah, they can be extremely bad, but they they aren't bad in themselves. Yeah, the there's a diff- there's the a different There's a difference the between abuse and use. Mm-hmm. You can use cannabis. Mm-hmm. You can enjoy it as a, as a recreational thing. Or you can abuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can abuse it where your life takes over and you become addicted to it, mm-hmm. so to speak. Just as with cocaine or any or other type of... Or, or, or critically but, alcohol. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, to be honest, you all know the most dangerous drug on the planet is alcohol. Yeah, but we don't ban that. Because it's a socially acceptable thing. Exactly, yeah. 
which is why I like the idea of cannabis because it's starting to become a bit more socially acceptable. And as you know from your time in the tobacco companies, um, there is a, a, a slow push, um, a slow but heavy push to start to get ready for the, even the legalization of cannabis, mm. even here in Australia. Yeah, and the tobacco companies have plans to start selling cannabis as soon as they can, basically, when they're legalized, mm. because they see a massive growing market. Um, the question is then, how do we make cannabis used? What you want to do is make the least number of people come into harm with it. And I think the obvious way with cannabis is to not be throwing people into jail for having it and not be throwing, stigmatizing people who do need help when they're using too much. Well, I think we've also got to remember um, cannabis is also very different to other drugs. Exactly. One, you can't technically get addicted to it. You can love the high, but you can't get addicted to it in the same way as you would with ice, meth, etc. Um, however, um, you can come, come dependent on it. I'm not disregarding that side of it, but... Um, I think that the form of cannabis addiction is different to other kind to addictions that I've experienced and that I, to other mm. addictions that um, we see in society because I think it's a, it's a very different experience to the user. But also that means that our policies do have to be different, as you say. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, yeah. And I suppose that leads us on to a nice segue into, um, it, into public health change. Mm. Um, as you kind of mentioned, the need for policy change. Where do you see kind of almost from at this present time, at least from the outside looking in to public health? Because you aren't directly in public, in public health, mm-hmm. although you may eventually end up in that direction. Um, where do you see from that outside view of public health in the near and even possibly distant future? Like, where do you see it kind of going? What, what changes do you see you need? I'm very concerned, actually, and my concern is um, sort of on two key factors. The first thing is that climate change is coming, as we all know, and I think that the impacts in climate change on public health, not, not as a field, but as the actual public health of the people in our society, is going to be enormous. Um, and the reasons is that if our environment isn't working functionally, how can we as people work functionally? And I think that we're also seeing the problems of the policy in, de- in a lot of Western societies over the last 30 years coming to a head. My view is that, as I mentioned right at the start, that we aren't really good at making long-term planning and, and changes in society. We're not good, and when our governments are changing so frequently, they can't make 30-year plans about how to deal with a problem. And public health is all about dealing with a problem over a long scale. And climate change is all about dealing with a problem over a long scale. So I think those are the biggest challenges coming, is how do we deal with that? Um, it might be helpful to work, th- to just think about, like, what does for example, a climate change have as an impact on an individual and then how does that help? Yeah, so like, let's, let's imagine that you live in a, a rural Australian town and that's, thrown, that's going to be prone to bushfires and floods and different weather. And whereas normally you would have lived um, with some public health issues, so bad food, diets, might, which are very common out there, might have been an issue, now you're going to be facing a time when um, you are experiencing, for example, random flooding and random heat waves across a year, and maybe there'll be bushfires that come and destroy your home. And now that your climate is unstable, it's going to be harder for you to plan your life effectively, and that means it's going to be harder for you to eat well, it's going to be harder for you to um, to have good habits, you might be more likely to abuse drugs to deal with the stress, and you're also under a lot of stress, which we know when, when your body is under stress over a long time, that causes health issues. And so we're going to see just in one little way an impact from climate change on a particular family, for example, is going to make it harder for them to manage their health in the long run. Now we extrapolate that out to the entire country and the entire of the world, really, where things are going wrong so quickly because climate change is getting worse and worse. It's going to be really hard to keep our public health like set up. And the way we need to deal with this is dealing with these problems now and planning for them now. And I don't really know if it's happening. But my, my question there is... Um, how like how can we um, create a policy that sort of thing, um, like with as I said with that turnover of government every four years, as you mentioned, you've got the issue. So hypothetically, if we went back into having um, the uh, liberals back into government, everything that the Greens have, uh, uh, say the Greens and Labor, uh, yeah. that Labor has worked slowly towards. Not that they've done an overly good job. 
Um, it could be undone. Exactly, yeah. It could, so, and that kind of, it re- essentially it's this game of almost ping-pong to some extent where all the policies that just got put in place over the last, what, six months or whatever, mm-hmm. um, over the next three years, they've just started to slowly start working if, mm-hmm. if they've done anything at all. And then you get to a point where hypothetically the um, other government party comes in mm-hmm. and they hypothetically they win. They've just ping pong ping ponged all those um, policies and everything back to square one, mm-hmm. exacerbating those same problems. It's a huge issue. In the last 20 years, it's been two steps forward, one step back, and sometimes three steps back. And so we haven't been able to get those long-term changes. I think there is a bit of light on the horizon, though, because as climate change hits harder, more and more people are starting to realise that we really do have to deal with it. And young people have... Um, voted unusually in the last sort of 10 years because the expectation is that as people got older they would always go to the right side of politics but we haven't seen that we've seen a lot more young people and middle-aged people and, moving and, and staying left and, and and more so as well something that they mentioned as well where there was more people moving towards that left at an older gen like, exactly, like grandparents yeah. and things like that who started looking mm-hmm. hey like uh and i think part of it um, is to do th- with things like I said your sister was part of the climate march mm-hmm. uh, didn't, if I'm not mistaken yeah, she, 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 she helped a long-term create it didn't, uh, in, mm-hmm. in, um, down in Tasmania yeah she was one of the leaders for the t- Tasmanian one correct? yes yeah. so, and, and we see um, a lot more people across the age generation realising that we have to deal with this problem now mm. otherwise it's going to be a disaster and so I think the old form of politics of the Liberal Party and um, the Republican Party in the US for denying climate change is a thing and making no real changes and positive mm. changes, it's probably going to make them pretty unelectable in the future. That doesn't mean that the, the fast-changing nature of democracy isn't still going to be an issue here. Mm. And there's not a really huge amount that I know what to do with it because we have democracy for a reason. We'd rather not live in a dictatorship. Speak but for it, yourself. It does mean that things aren't as effective and fast. And the best long-term planning we see in public health is often found in countries where there is sort of a more less change in government. For example, Singapore has good long-term health planning because they have one party that stays in government for 50 years. And a billion trees. And a billion trees. And um, But I think some things that we can do are... I think some things that we can do are incentivizing our politicians to care about our public health more. That means that we are voting a lot more actively and we're being a lot more vocal about it. I think this podcast is a part of that. And also generally making people a lot more aware that the policies we have now impacts them today and tomorrow and for the rest of their lives and their kids' and lives. A, a, a thought for you as well, if I can remember what it was. Um, not one of my days for remembering things. <laughs> um, we all have those days. Yeah. Um, what was it? Um, that's right. Um, before we started as well, I think it was before we started, you mentioned talking about a little bit about things like food and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And my, my kind of two-question thing there is... As someone who's done a bit of research around climate change and things like that and been around a lot of people, like your, like your family, especially your sister, um, do you see a, a need for a push towards uh, better foods, around, more around vegetable foods, mm-hmm. rather than trying to do more animal agriculture, which is part of the issue part as the well? Issue. And even things like clean meat, do you see a push for that hopefully sooner rather than later? I don't just think that we need you know, more vegetable foods. I think that we need to reimagine the entire food chain. This is a separate issue um, in some ways because it's such a massive topic, mm. but I think it's very important. We might have to do another, might have to go down another this, episode yeah. for that. But definitely it's a massive problem because our entire food chain is based on making food that is as cheap as possible. And, and who cares about the animal rights consequences or the health consequences or the environmental consequences? I think that we need to be getting back to a time when our food is a lot more environmentally consciously grown. Look, built. Looking at a one health point of view where we consider humans, yeah. animals and the environment in our health. Exactly. And so I think the biggest thing that we need to do is have government intervening in the first place because up until really recently in, and in America, not even it hasn't even happened, effectively um, the government leaves the food industry alone to do what they want. And they're profit-driven, as, as we all know, and so they will do things that only impact their profits. What we need is to be adding other incentives in. So we could be adding taxes on meats. We could be doing things like adding 
carbon taxes on the food that we eat so that less carbon intensive foods like vegetables and fruits become a lot cheaper than they currently are and that more carbon intensive foods such as our highly processed or, or, or even better reduce the subsidies on the meat and absolutely. increase the subsidies on the vegetables absolutely we need we need careful um, subsidies but, and we need to stop allowing companies to just get away with doing whatever they mm. want especially what, in animal what, health. what what was it um a, a macca's burger so you know like the two dollar mm. macca's burger yeah do you know how much that would be if they took the subsidies away I'm assuming double the price. Fifteen dollars. Yikes! For a bag, like for and that, yeah. that squares with what we've seen because when our grandkids were young, that would be a, the price of meat was so much higher because it hadn't been industrialized so effectively. Mm. But also that meant that more people ate vegetables. And now, obviously, cheap foods are very nice to have, but I think that we need to be careful what foods we allow to be so cheap. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. And um, I suppose going on from there, finishing up uh, mm-hmm. a little bit, almost with. Um, what do you think your future will look like? I think my future, I'm currently moving into industry in AI and robotics engineering. I think that in the long term, my future is going to look like getting back into neuroscience with my AI experience. And I've always really wanted to be a part of um, prosthetic development and brain-computer interface development. So I think definitely that's going to be a part of my future. The other pathway is that we both go into public health and do politics and um, become sort of the advocates for the change that we've been talking about. Because in a sense, if, if, if no one... if if somebody doesn't start, no one's going to do it. And so I think we really need to get the message out there mm. that we need more people advocating for good policy in order to get our climate change and public health issues dealt with. Mm. Or, bet, or better yet, just have policymakers who know how to read research. Well, absolutely. And we need to be talking to politicians mm. and getting them to understand. And we need to be talking across society. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, to finish up, um, that was a really good podcast, actually. Um, but to finish up, um, do you have a um, an email or social media or some form that uh, if people want to contact you and talk to you about this sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, so um, I definitely, the first port of call is always LinkedIn. Um, hit me up on LinkedIn at Thomas Godfrey. We can post some details. Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll, I will add a link into the show notes yep. for these things. So, yeah. But also, um, just be also willing to reach out to your local public health professors and people at universities. The academics are always willing to talk to people. They love talking about their research. Um, and I think that we can have a lot more engagement across society. Yep. Yeah, no, cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's the end of this uh, podcast. Uh, thanks, Tom, for being on the podcast. Thanks it very much for inviting me. Yeah, really good to have you. See ya. See ya.